joined uh, today by the Professional Equity Subcommittee co-chairs, Iman Ansari and Elisabetta Del Rey. So Iman, would you like to introduce yourself? With pleasure. Uh, so my name is Iman uh, Ansari. I'm a pediatric uh, pulmonologist, intensive care unit physician. And I practice in the emergency department and the sedation unit at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm also an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. What else would you like to know, Hardeep? Like background and... Sure. Your background, you know, how you ended up at the JCSW, how you ended up being the co-chair. Perfect. So um, I was born and raised in Saudi Arabia. I came to the U.S. at the age of 24 following medical school to do postgraduate training. I trained here in Boston. I did my pediatrics and then combined fellowship pulmonary and critical care um, also uh, in Boston at Boston Children's Hospital. And uh, my residency was at Tufts. And then after that, I became a faculty in critical care for five years. During that time, I did basic research on pneumonia and one child, then the second, then the third, then the fourth. And I decided to take a step back uh, a little bit, do what I do best, which is my clinical work, but take a step back from uh, research, um, raise the children, um, continue to be full-time physician. And I decided to do emergency medicine. I felt there's more flexibility in terms of work-life integration and shift work. And during that time, I came back to uh, Boston Children's. So I went to Cincinnati initially and came back to Children's and I learned about the JCSW. So uh, as a faculty, so I joined the JCSW, I would say about 11 years ago. I was in the work-life subcommittee for a period of time. I was a panelist on multiple uh, occasions for that committee. And a couple of years ago, I was looking at the different committees and I thought that um, professional equity um, subcommittee seems uh, of great interest to me because of promotion, salary, social justice, multiple issues. I feel like it spoke to me a lot. So I joined it. uh, I enjoyed it a great deal last year. And by the end of the year, the former uh, co-chair said, how about you apply to become a co-chair? And that's how I became a co-chair. Great. I think that's how it goes. Somebody just invites you to, but it's more of a, you know, you will do this. (laughs) And Elizabeth, would you like to introduce yourself? as well? Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, my name is Elisabetta Del Re, and uh, I am an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. My uh, research is focused on uh, serious mental diseases, so schizophrenia, in general psychosis and other mental diseases, also because we know that many of these mental diseases share a genetic background. I try to study all of them. And I originally am from Italy. I came here to study. I was pre-med and then I studied biochemistry, master and PhD. Uh, I also studied mental health. I am a master in mental health and I combine all these things. So I look at mental health as something that has a neurobiological substrate and a neurodevelopmental trajectory. And so I try to combine the genetics of mental diseases, neuroimaging, cognition, all aspects that together might help understand schizophrenia or and we try to go beyond the DSM categorization, mostly because there is a common genetic background, not 100%, but there is a lot of overlap. Trying to go beyond the symptomatology, but go to the neurobiological substrates. I 
am in love with JCSW. It's a wonderful uh, group of women. They are all intelligent, beautiful. We all together bring on a fight to have women reach equality and equity with men. I am part of the P subcommittee as a co-chair. I was asked uh, to join this year as a co-chair. I was in the P committee before. I'm also part of community outreach. We have several goals for the PE committee. We are trying to basically discuss and bring some advancement uh, on teams like maternity leaves for women and for men, promotion for women, trying to understand whether there is equality there, trying to reach out to leadership. So to have their important contribution in these uh, discussions. I'm very happy to be P with Eman. Ansari, we really click from the start. This is just my uh, presentation for now. And I'm happy to be with you too, Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, we, we really work well together. We do, we do. So, Emmanuel, you've been a JCSW member for a long time now, 11 years. Yeah. Have you seen any changes uh, in the JCSW membership or, you know, does anything sort of stand out to you about you know, oh, you know, we used to do this 11 years ago and then now we do this. So I have to say that at the beginning, I wasn't as uh, my attendance record wasn't as high just because I was handling a lot um, between clinical work and a full house and uh, younger kids. But what struck me about the JCSW is that, as Elizabeth was saying, it's a group of very like minded, enthusiastic women who are trying to move issues pertaining to working mothers and working women forward. And there is this like shared sense of purpose. So I, every time I went there, like there is this energy that infuses, we can do things. And I felt that over the course of the past 11 years, like attendance, it then flowed, but in, in total, I would say it's been increasing. And uh, JCSW has a very well-regarded name in the Harvard community. And uh, whenever a new woman faculty joins uh, any of the affiliated hospitals, my hospital included, we tend to recommend like, oh, you should be part of JCSW as well. The pandemic definitely dealt a hit to us in terms of getting together and having these side talks and introductions and the organic networking that is not necessarily uh, in a particular meeting and more intentional. But thankfully, right now we're going back to it. In terms of change, one of the observations I've had is that, and this is not only JCSW, this is in general, people work organically and very hard at bringing issues to the surface and bringing data and numbers and trying to make a case. But every time I've seen a strong, effective, lasting change, there was a buy-in from the leadership. The leadership buy-in is so crucial. I think Elizabeth and I agree that to be effective, we need to make our case in the most compelling way, not necessarily the most aggressive or scientific or numerical way, the most compelling way that fits with the leadership style in listening to us in order for things to change. I can't remember the name, but there's a documentary about female directors in Hollywood. And what they did was they got data to show, you know, how many female directors there were and how many were the successful ones, how many more millions of dollars they were bringing in in terms of this, the successful, but fewer directors 
female directors. And so as you were talking about that, I wonder, you know, because when you got the data, it's difficult to refute the data if you have um, all that information. And I'm wondering whether you've considered this or I'm sure you have considered it and what kind of data you're looking to gather if, if you are. So Elizabeth, would you like to take that? Okay. So uh, we are trying to actually, we have a very active member of subcommittee and Heidi, and she is trying to basically promote a survey, a survey among women professionals, starting with the JCSW, trying to aggressively understand questions of transparency concerned with salary. So these are important issues because we have a law in Massachusetts that is few years old where there is an obligation for transparency on salaries. So we know that women uh, earn in general on average uh, less than men in the same position. And so this is a very important um, project that we are trying to carry on. Those data will be important, possibly to write a white paper and publish a paper. That's our goal and build on that. Now, as a man was saying, and I was also saying, the interaction with leadership is very important. We are very fortunate to have a very wonderful leadership. We are looking for collaboration toward, I would say, for example, regarding this issue of transparency, uh, having collaboration full collaboration on this issue. One of the issues that I have to say we learned from uh, the pandemic is that data is important, but data by itself is not enough. So trying to convince people about the importance of vaccine and uh, the impact of vaccines uh, to keep us alive. So we are here today uh, just talking with numbers uh, will not change hearts and minds fully. So partly numbers, partly context, partly putting all of this in a narrative and looking at each leader and their style of leading and try to meet them where they are and look at their goals. So we're we're looking to develop strategies so that the numbers, the narrative, everything put together would hopefully get us the results we want. Are you also going to look at productivity? You know, papers published, something something like that as well to maybe correlate that with salary or something. I don't I don't know. I'm just we haven't we haven't pursued that. It's a very good idea. There is an amazing paper in PNAS that looked at 60 years of productivity. And there is the issue of what has been defined the lower productivity of women in academia. That paper was able to demonstrate that if you look at year, each year of an academic career, there is no lower productivity for women. The problem is when you look at the total length of the academic career, then you see less productivity, meaning that women oftentimes have years where they take care of the children in addition to having a career. So by taking that into account, there is no lower productivity of women. But Ardip, that's such a good suggestion. We might follow up on that. Yeah. Thank you. 
There are things that are even before we look at, so that would help us in terms of criteria for promotion, et cetera. We're thinking about issues like how long a faculty has been in an institution, how long did it take between two ranks for women versus men, and then who initiates the discussion. So irrespective of productivity, if we, and I don't know the data yet, this is among the things we want to look at, if a faculty always initiates promotion when she's a woman versus the chair is the one who initiates the promotion when it's a man. There is a concern there that perhaps we need to look at reasons why uh, the conversation is not initiated in the same way. So there are multiple steps along the way from hiring to each step of the promotion that are worth dissecting. Yeah. Can you talk more about that? Because it's not something that I'm totally familiar with. You know, I have some idea on the promotions process. You know, the, you have to be to go from assistant to associate and an associate to full professor. You have to show that you're sort of a national or internationally renowned in your field of, of research. But, you know, I, I think that the details of, you know, who initiates it, and that would be interesting if you could, you know, talk more about that side of things. Well, so basically what we are trying to understand and to pursue is the length of time. Actually, there are two, two issues we are trying to pursue. The length of time for women versus men in academia uh, between one stage of the academic career to the next. And then the other aspect is when women are at the point in academia that they might be promoted, is the chair of the department taking the initiative to start this conversation? Or are always women that, you know, feel the need to start the conversation? So is there a divide there? in terms of men and, and women. So those are two aspects that we are trying to understand more. Like assuming that there was a discrepancy and we don't know, we need to look at the data, assuming there is a discrepancy, then the question is, is it because of certain assumptions that they don't want to pressure the woman to, you know, to focus on her promotion and her tenure and career and she can take enough time to take care of kids? Like, is it out of thoughtfulness? Is it out of uh, misassumptions? Is it out of what exactly and how we can fix it. Of course. So are you saying that it should come from the chair or, you know, for a man, it would come from the chair because the chair would know, you know. Ardeep, we are still trying to collect data. So we don't know, but we are curious to understand this process. Uh, it is possible that, for example, for young mothers with children out of kindness, there is some reserve in pushing for a new stage of the career that involves more work. And so we are trying to understand how this process works. And of course, it's a process that uh, has unconscious type of cultural um, perspectives and also um, maybe not so unconscious. So, so it will be fun to have some data. But in, in some ways, like I see in like a utopian perfect world, um, a certain position would have a set salary at a certain institution. It doesn't matter what the gender of the person um, at the institution is to get that salary. And um, whether be it annual review will always include a question 
is the faculty ready for promotion? So that's a question that is visited on annual basis, or there is a program that gets triggered uh, when a faculty reaches that threshold. But trying to unify the process um, and to have more clarity and transparency in the process, I think would give everyone a sense of justice and fairness in the process. Right now, it's very variable. Like anecdotally speaking, people would say, oh, I'm the one who brought it up to my chair. Oh, actually, my chair is the one who who said it. Um, and then people would say, well, I it turned out that I met criteria five years ago. And someone else would say, I haven't met criteria perfectly, but then the chair helped me meet the criteria in order to submit my dossier. So these variabilities, if we can um, figure out a way to to clarify them. And again, the the goal is to learn, number one, and then perhaps have a scorecard of sort to faming rather than shaming, basically faming the ones who do it really so well. Um, And there is tremendous equity in their divisions or departments so that others can learn how did they do it. I think I'm being beginning to understand. Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I have to tell you, like, because we're, we're mentioning our backgrounds and anecdotes, um, two things about my background uh, came into play here. One of them is I grew up in a culture and in a country that we thought maybe my grandchildren will be able to drive cars and be in charge of themselves because nothing has changed in 24 years I was in Saudi Arabia and nothing changed in 24 other years I was out of Saudi Arabia. So, you know, we didn't expect change to happen. And lo and behold, uh, a new king comes to the throne and he um, decides to have his son modernize the country. And in a day and night, uh, new rules were instated by uh, the crown prince and the entire country followed. And what was yesterday haram for women to do and completely forbidden by dictum of a religion, the following day became, oh, actually, the religion wanted women to drive. They used to drive camels 1400 years ago, which gave me the sense that if the leadership decided on something, if we get the buy-in from the leadership, change would happen much faster than when it comes from the grassroots. And the second thing is, despite a lot of um, perception about women's rights um, in Saudi Arabia, which I, I have to say, um, there is a lot of truth to, to the perception when it comes to equal pay there is equal pay. So it is the position that has a a particular price. And once you're in that position, woman or man, that's the price of the position. You don't negotiate up or down. It's a set fixed price. So the justice in terms of equal pay is, is a given because it's the position. And I think it would be great if there is a way to define positions that way. So we're not like 50 years into women's movement and women still feel that they're being underpaid um, and data would support that many, especially working mothers are underpaid in, in all professions and in all specialties. Agree. Uh, Eman, thank you for, for that contribution. Very interesting. It's different in Italy though. <laughs> well, I can tell you that in the 70s, a law was changed in Italy. In I think in 1978, I might be wrong, the exact date. Women were considered as children till then, legally. Their status was that of a child. So that's not long time ago. I mean, it's yesterday. With all the consequences, you know, being legally considered as a child brings with it. So 
it's a long journey toward equality and uh, equal representation for women. So it's interesting what you're saying about Saudi Arabia, but, you know, if you look around, <laughs> it has been a long journey here in Europe. No, definitely. I, I'm, I'm glad women have made tremendous strides in the past 100 years uh, compared to 70,000 years of humanity. But still, we're, we're far from being equitable on equitable basis. Plus, we came into the workplace recently, very, very recently. So there, there are issues of equity um, at the home and outside in the society. And there are professional equity, which is what our committee is, is dealing with. We've been in, the, in a man-made workplace for men with wives at home for a relatively short period of time. And we're working at adjusting the place to accommodate women and mothers and different types of families that may not have a husband and a wife, maybe a single parent, maybe same gender parents. So we are evolving. Um, we need to evolve faster. Yeah. I, I cannot send into that. I, as a choice, I decided to be home for quite a few years with the, with the kids. And that was personal choice. I wanted to enjoy fully the amazing relationship uh, with my kids. But I have to say, this society does not make it easy for women to have a profession and at the same time having their role as mothers and, you know, providers. So that's another thing we should strive for. Yeah, I think childcare in the US is pretty terrible in terms of allowing women to go back to work because it's it's expensive in terms of if you have daycare, you have to go and pick them up and if they're ill and, and all that kind of thing, or you have a nanny who isn't cheap either, you know, is, is pretty expensive. And there is unpredictability in the process itself. Like you think it's set, you think you have the nanny, you think you have everything set and all of a sudden your child spikes a fever or the nanny gets sick, or the daycare closes, and it just can throw you off completely. I have been asking these two questions to, to people, one of which is, what professional skill would you like to work on or are you working on? And one, what personal skill have you been, you know, would you like to work on? And it can be anything. There's no right or wrong answers here. I would say professional skill. Um, I wish in medical school, they taught us um, two things, financial literacy. We, we don't, we don't know how to manage money. We think we do, but I think part of being a leader of a team, of a division, of anything, you need to have adequate financial literacy and also leadership. They teach that in the business school. Um, we learn it on the go in medicine and in science. And I think if we have, um, if we have more direction, uh, that would be great. But I think I'm going to learn about leadership until the day I die. But that's um, a skill I'm trying to hone. Personal level, I think, um, I don't want to say negotiations as much as compelling uh, negotiations. Like how can you uh, debate something with someone, especially with our leadership and convince, we don't want to fight them. We want to convince them. We want to get their buy-in to see to see our side, to be in our shoes. And if I can master that, I think uh, I would be able to achieve on our goals um, a lot faster. I think if you could master that, then you would <laughs> probably rule the world. <laughs> 
People would be clamoring to know how you to do it. Because I think that's a, real, a skill that we could all um, keep working on. It's Yeah, it's like how do you convince someone that to be in your shoes, to see it from your perspective, would be a good skill. Yeah, because you don't want to argue opponent uh, ideas. If you lose, you lost. And if you win and the other li- uh, side lost, you lost. You lost that person. Like you want to win your point with the other person winning too, you know? And how we, do we do that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's also like not seeing something as black and white, like winning or losing, you know, it's like on on the sort of continuum of, you know, where you meet in the middle or it's not really like, oh, you, you're going to, you know, you're going to win that particular argument and I've lost it and now now what? Now we can't move forward, you know. But Elizabeth, what about you? Well, I'm thinking that leadership skills also in my case and in the personal realm, but of, of course anything uh, overlaps, personal, professional uh, connections. I have to say I have friends and uh, I have collaborations in my research everywhere in the world, Africa, Argentina. Um, but I feel the more connections we have, the more life is um, has a purpose and has a meaning. And so connections and it's wonderful to see people as very different, but at the core, they are all humans. And so this is uh, something that I always uh, try to enhance for myself and for others. Yeah, that's why I'm doing this, because I like the connections that I make, you know, otherwise I would never have been speaking to you. You know, I mean, that's the thing about the JCSW, you know, it's about meeting people who you would normally never meet. Yeah, I have discovered you, Hardeep, I have to say, and it's wonderful. I feel like we might be friends in the future because I, I was able to talk to you. Uh, because of this, uh, also last time we were talking, it's a wonderful feeling. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of leadership, like what would you be working on? Which aspect of leadership? I guess in my case, um, they need to work with many different types of people and make it work, make the group an harmonious all. So for example, Uh, I have students and they have very different personalities. And sometimes there might be some disagreement, talking about papers, authorship. So the ability of making people understand that it's a teamwork, that we all contribute to a project. There is no project in science that comes from one person. So it's very important to be a good leader in that sense and have people work together, it might be very hard, especially in academia where, of course, there are so many very smart people, very hardworking, very passionate. And uh, sometimes they forget that without the group, without the, the system, without the support of all the pieces, there is no paper because somebody acquired the data, somebody had an idea, somebody wrote a grant to the NIH, somebody uh, was able to get the funding. So this sense of community, it's part of being a good leader, you know, and it's it's not easy. It seems easy, but it's not an easy process, I have to say. 
So issues come up and you have to deal with them, you know. Yeah, leading a team is difficult. Iman, what about you? Are you in terms of leadership? So um, one of the skills that I'm I'm trying to keep honing is um, what do I have to make decisions on um, as a leader of the team? And what can I delegate and have a consensus decision on? Um, so it would be great if we have consensus on everything. Um, but sometimes you need to make a decision. It's very easy and clear in medicine. Like if the patient is very sick, there's no time for consensus. You, you take decisions. And if the patient is very stable, the stakes are high and you need really a well thought through plan, you sit together with a group of people and you all think together and come up with a consensus. When it comes to issues, administrative issues and issues of um, promotion and doing a study and putting a survey together, etc., you want to bring the team on board, but ultimately decisions need to be made. And how do you make these decisions? Which is, which is not easy. You want to empower all the voices, but you don't want the process to to linger too long. Yeah, I can imagine that in that medical setting and in the research setting, it's it's so nuanced in terms of getting this consensus and trying to make sure people are satisfied. I don't think, you know, you're not going to satisfy everyone. You know, one question I had come up with that I thought was um, was pretty good. What's the best compliment you've ever had? Mm. There is something I've heard this week almost 10 times, and I don't know if it's a best compliment, but um, people described me this week, you're a force. And I said, I responded today on the text when someone said it to me last. I told her, I've heard this several times this week. As long as I'm a force for good, I'll take it. That's that's so nice. I would agree, Aman. <laughs> so you have another person. Elizabeth, what about you? What's the best compliment you've ever had? I'm thinking because I have have had a few of them. I have to say, um, courageous, um, generous, um, angelic, and uh, I guess superior intelligence. I had I had that a few times from um, dear mentors that I'm some that I've, I've passed and that I loved very dearly, unfortunately, because that's what happens in academia. You have like a father or a mother that is helping you. And then, you know, um, it's so interesting. It's a little bit of a recap of family ties in research because you find like a family, you know, where you grow up and then, but um, so academia is a wonderful place to be. I have to say. So you, you're a, a big thumbs up to academia. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's challenging, especially because, as I was saying, there are a lot of type A personalities. And I'm, I'm sure a man in medicine, too. So, you know, but academia becomes a little bit like second home. I mean, you have people where you discuss with people, you know, ideas and you see it's it keeps you alive. I think it keeps you young. I mean, I have my neighbor here that is professor of law at Harvard. And uh, I always tell her, Christine, you look so young. And it's 
the fact that she's writing, she's discussing with students and, you know, but I see the same in medicine, especially among what you are doing. It is an everyday challenge because you are in the emergency. So every day your brain is really working. And I think working with students, like in science or in medicine, keeps you always on your toes and keeps you always energized and infused with like creative ideas, their creative juice that they they it's keep true. bringing at you, which is which is great. It's wonderful. I've never tried industry, so I have no um no frame of reference with industry, but um, having the students and the teaching um, and the variability in the type of experiences that you do within the same job. Like I take care of patients, I teach, I can do research within the same job rather than the whole job is one thing makes academia for me enjoyable. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. The, the flexibility for sure. Yeah, I think, Elisabetta, what you're saying, and Iman, what you were saying as well, like creativity, I think is, is you know, that exchange of ideas of, you know, what do you, what do you think about this? Or maybe we could, you know, I was thinking about doing it this way or that way. I think that's where it, it's really special in terms of the academic side of things. And, and also that some of the time or most of the time, people are open to new ideas as well. Yeah, true. Absolutely. It's through our deep. The catalyst is an example of that. It's all for new ideas and collaborations. The Harvard catalyst, yes. yes. Yeah, we try. We try to. <laughs> you try, but you are successful. I tell you that, Hardeep. Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So we're at five o'clock. Did you guys have anything else you want to add to the conversation? You know, all what we would say, join us, join us. Uh, We want more uh, brilliant minds as part of our subcommittee to think about this together, to solve it together. Um, The solution is there. Um, We're just working to get to it, but there is a solution. Equity is going to happen. We want it to happen soon. So please join us. Yeah. And thank you so much for giving us a voice. So we're very grateful. No, thank you guys for for uh, agreeing to do this. You know, I, I decided to do this and, you know, trying to convince. I mean, it's like what you were saying, Iman. It's like I'm trying to convince people to participate by saying it's not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it has been sort of slow. And I've had to really think about how how I do that because I can be direct as well and just you know have a hard time seeing it from somebody else's point of view because i think that oh why what's a big what's such a big deal you're just having a conversation it's me you know we can edit it out there's there's not a big deal here but um i have to stop and think that that how other people would feel about having their you know voice out there or if they say the wrong thing and you know the the trepidation and and worry around that so how long have you been doing it you know i've only done um like four episodes. So I'll tell you why I ask. Um, I started a book club uh, at Children's, which will be a subject of uh, a forum and a panel discussion in April uh, at Children's. But when I started it, I, I said it's for the whole hospital. Anyone could come. It's in the division of emergency medicine. And few people would come and would trickle in. And then at one point, I invited a local author to an author event and we sent it through the Office of Faculty Development. More people came. And then I decided to invite every author of a book that we read. And some of them 
didn't even respond to my emails. So some of them asked for like $30,000 and some of them decided to show up. And every time an author shows up, it makes it a lot easier for the next author to come. So when I sent recently, um, one of the authors is Colin McCann. I sent his publicist uh, an email asking if he would like to join us for a book discussion. He said, well, which other authors have come to this uh, event? And I said, well, Bonnie Garmas came. And, you know, and I started mentioning the names of the physicians, but they recognized Bonnie Garmas. So he said, he's in. And now I have his name and Bonnie's name to use it to try to get, you know, the next. So I think you will build on the successes, but you're a great, great host. You make you made us feel easy and we're just talking with you. And you can tell people, you know, Elisabetta and Iman spoke with me, those and those spoke with me. Um, it's very easy. And the more people speak to you, the more people will speak with you. It's true. You facilitated in a wonderful way. Oh, thank you. Iman, can you add me to your booklet? Of course. Of course. <laughs> of course, with pleasure. With pleasure. I would love that. What books have you done so far? done uh, we've been uh, going for two and a half years now since the pandemic started I can tell you from January to December we did this is how it always is and then by Laurie Frankel then noise by Daniel Kahneman the huntress a novel by Kate Quinn sapiens Yuval Harari a letter to a young female physician by Suzanne Coven local from MGH it ends with us Colleen Hoover the power so we're not using just one genre we jump between silly to serious to to different things and you don't have to attend every every month uh, club like if the book is something that appeals to you and you want to read it uh, you can join but it's been it's been interesting and what is most exciting i have to tell you is um to hear the different perspectives of people so years ago i did something called vts virtual thinking strategy and we went to the museum of fine arts and different people would comment on the same painting and you would think I've captured all the perspective and I said, and you would hear something completely different that you didn't consider. And it's humbling and exhilarating. And it's so exciting to think that, oh my God, there's so much intelligence out there that is not all inside my head and, and within me. And I can reach for it the more I speak with people and explore their thoughts. And same with the book club, like you get perspectives you didn't even consider. And we're reading all the same book, which is fascinating. So that version what thinking strategy it's like a, a thing yes it's a thing so there is an arts and humanity initiative at harvard uh, medical school uh, led by lisa wong and one of the ways that you can bring teams together is using different tools one of them is called vts virtual thinking strategy and actually the team that i was with i signed up to an email and it appealed to me and when i went there there was a nurse there was the chief of neurosurgery from the brigham there were a couple of administrators from the bi i was there and i think that was my group the five people very very diverse group and you forget the titles you will forget the background and you would just listen to the perspectives that you never considered and it's just fascinating and it's so enriching and it brings people on a level playing field that it doesn't matter my degrees or your degrees or anyone's you know this is through my life and through my experience this is what i saw in that painting which is fascinating yeah it is i'm gonna look that up vts virtual thinking strategy yeah 
fantastic. Okay, thank you so much again for um, doing this. Elisabetta, we can be friends. I of want to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about a man? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the three of us should be friends. Yeah, yeah. It's such a wonderful group of women. Artip, I have a question. Will you send us, before you post it, the edited version? Of course, of course. I might use some of this bit of chatting at the end because I think it's really nice and natural. So just because it just adds a little bit extra to the, you know, the energy of, of the podcast. So we're, we're and the, the warmth. There's yeah. warmth. Yeah. 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 There is warmth. It is so true, Eman. I agree. Yeah. It, it's very, um, yeah. I didn't like using the word aggressively. <laughs> I I used the word aggressively at some point and I didn't like that word, but it's okay. It's fine. Like, aggressive, I feel, is uh, like ambition. It's, um, a word with uh, some gender bias. If a man uses it, it's a good thing. And if a woman uses it, it counts against her. It's so true, a man. I remember my mom always saying, with your husband, always show that you are more stupid. <laughs> Don't listen. Because he's going to leave you. <laughs> Don't listen to her. So I'll add an adjective for you. You're very kind. I know it's oh, an adjective. that's something I always hear. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they always They're say, is that true, though, a man? You are, you are very kind. Everybody tells me so. And... I don't know. I mean, I hope I am. It's a good quality, but I, I don't feel it's ever enough. I don't know. No, you're very kind. I don't know that there is kind enough. Like, I think kindness is something that keeps on giving. I don't think there is enough, but you're very kind. And I'll give Hardeep uh, <laughs> an adjective. You're very graceful. You're very oh. gracious, which is very wonderful. My mom wishes that I'm more so. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I, I would. Yeah, but you thank have you. so much grace. You have so much grace and you're such a wonderful host. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I will definitely take that. That, that compliment compliment because nobody has ever said that about I me. I have to add something. Open. Open. Yeah. Open. You can listen. I like I felt that you were hearing me, and that's such a good quality. It's you know, you can pay enough for that type of quality. Thank you. Yeah. I hope to make things comfortable and open. You know, we get good good listening. Thank you so much, Hardeep, for having this like warm space for us to chat. Hardeep, thank you so, so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was wonderful.